Today on Bridging the Gap, Lindsay Larrabee joins us for a fun conversation. One of my favorite topics all around psychology, behavioral psychology. Lindsay is a consultant at Templar Advisors, a financial psychology and behavioral sciences lead, and a certified financial behavior specialist. Lindsay and I dig into the definition of money scripts, the four primary money scripts. And you know what? I let Lindsay flip the script and she helps me to identify what my money script is. I become vulnerable on this podcast. We dive into the conversations of trying to understand our clients' suspicions during trying times. And we also talk about tools that can help clients move forward. And our conversation leads us down the road of our client psychology today and in their future with their financial decisions. It's just a mind-blowing conversation because we dig into the mind. Such an insightful conversation with Lindsay. Let's get right into it. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Lindsay Larrabee, welcome to Bridging the Gap from Denver, Colorado, one of my favorite cities. I do love Denver in the summer, not necessarily the winter. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. How's everything going with you in Denver? Things are great in Denver, as they usually are. Thanks for having me, Matt. This is going to be fun. I, we were just talking about it before we started recording. You have such a focus on communication and psychology and money, and you're helping executives and professionals. And I'll let you share more about what y'all are doing at Templar and, and what you're doing. But this is something that's been under the water in the industry for so long. And now it's kind of like bubbling up and becoming so focused on. I mean, it's got to be such an exciting time for you and what your focus is. Tell us about it. How did you get to this point? Tell us about Templar. I'd love to just hear kind of the story of, of what got you in it because it's such an exciting time for your, your space. It really is. And it's it's almost like it happened overnight. Um, in my world, it happened when Richard Thaler started coming out with his insights and Nobel Prize prizes started being won for behavioral science. But really, in terms of trends and, and paying attention to these things and how they can help the world of financial services, that seems to be booming in the last five years. So it is exciting. We here at Templar Advisors actually play a critical role in the financial services industry and really any industry where there's client-facing professionals, and the success of your business depends on how impactful you are in your interactions. Um, so that's exactly what we do here at Templar. We, we coach executives and client-facing professionals to earn more business from better interactions, experiences, and relationships with their clients and stakeholders by means of simply more effective and impactful communication skills. So just tell me, how did you get to this point, right? Like, I mean, you say Richard Thaler and he kind of started to make it really kind of burst onto the scene. I always ask people like, did you wake up when you were 15 years old in high school and be like, you know what? Richard Thaler is going to win a Nobel prize and he's going to bring psychology and communication to the forefront for financial advisors. And you know what? I want to be there. How did you get to this point? Was this, what did you want to be? First off, what did you want to be when you grew up and was this it or was it something different? I'd love to know that. No, no, I definitely wanted to be a marine biologist. I did nerd out on a lot of things. Financial psychology wasn't one of them at that point. Really, I didn't know what I wanted to be. None of us do. In fact, now there's actually a tool on the market that does help with that, which we can talk about at some point. But I grew up in a family that, you know, was a single mom and certainly very lower middle class. My dad was somebody who's a small business owner and struggled a lot. And he always drilled these money mindset lessons into me throughout my entire life. Things like the only freedom in life you'll ever have is freedom from debt or 
you know, save till it hurts or all of these things that taught me it's not about how much money you have, but how you behave with it that makes a difference. Now my dad lives in a neighborhood where well, we have quite a few Broncos players and he's never made more than, you know, about 40 grand a year in the prime of his life. So that says a lot about how you behave with money, where it can get you. And it really instilled a lot of my beliefs. So I actually started my career doing investment sales and consulting. I started with Oppenheimer Funds for about eight years, moved on to BNY Mellon, doing investment sales consulting, working across all channels, whether that be you know the independence, the, the retail, RAAs, private bank, bank trust, family offices. I've worked with all of them. I loved what I did. I was good at it, but I didn't feel like I was a rock in anybody's world, <laughs> slaying in investments all day. What I did learn actually from Templar coaching my firm was it was the soft skills, quote unquote, that actually make a difference and how people behave and how we influence others' decisions and behaviors and how we can really help them do things better. So Templar came, they coached us. I started getting some certifications in this area back at Oppenheimer, got hooked into financial psychology, behavioral finance, went back to school for another master's in financial psychology and behavioral finance at Creighton University. Templar came back, coached us again, and I thought, you know what? I've tested the stuff in the field. This stuff works, and this is for me. So I chased him down, and I made him hire me. <laughs> I love it. You had something focused. You know, it, it, it is so interesting. I, I think, you know, we're talking about psychology here. We're talking about how people make decisions, money. But psychology, I mean, it's probably one of the topics I enjoyed the most. I was so intrigued by it when I was in school. Mm. You know, you think about psychology, and it drives our all of our decisions, not just money decisions, right? You, think, you talk about your, your father and what he instilled in you at that age drove you to what you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Slinging investments at Oppenheimer and then getting into <laughs> psychology, right? Nothing against Oppenheimer, great firm. But it's so interesting. And, and so we now talk about the impact that it's having on financial advisors. You talk about Richard Thaler and he was the start of it. As y'all do research on this, like why did financial advisors finally come to the realization that this is something of a topic when it, it's not like people have changed? Like it's always been this way, but we always focus on investment and now we're trying to shift our mentality of serving clients to help them psychologically. Yeah. Why was it Richard Thaler that started that? When you look into that, what was the impetus there, you think? Well, there was a lot of influential characters, I think. Even it, Dr. Bradley and Ted Klons, those were my professors. We actually coined them as the fathers of financial psychology. But what I think this, it, this industry has realized slowly, but certainly surely at this point, is that it is increasingly commoditized. Everyone's great, got great products. Advisors all have similar models, portfolios, the same kind of tools. What really makes a difference is how you interact with your clients. And actually, clients report year after year. One of the number one reasons they work with advisors in the first place is to help them make better quality decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a psychological aspect to that and certainly behavioral. And our industry for the longest time has primarily just focused on the extrinsic aspects of planning, right? The balance sheet, the fees, the performance, and all that's good, but it's commoditized and you only have so much control. And for you as the advisor, that limits you, but that also limits the client. What we haven't focused on is the intrinsic, and that's what all this stuff with financial psychology, behavioral finance is bringing to the table. The intrinsic, meaning more focus on the values, the goals, the backgrounds of your clients, even personality types, generation, uh, money scripts, which is something we talk about quite a lot, your unconscious money beliefs that drive your behaviors. All of these play a much more controlled and impactful role in your money outcomes. 
at least from my biased opinion. <laughs> you mentioned money scripts. That's such an interesting kind of word or words or, or phrase. What is what are money scripts? What what are they? How do you use them? But then I want to go back to one other topic. But money scripts that I, that just caught my ear. Money scripts are unconscious beliefs that each of us have developed about money, which are inherently the driver behind all of our money behaviors and tendencies. So essentially your money scripts, there's four primary money scripts. They reveal why you make the money choices that you do. And they're developed in childhood, right? They are transgenerational, meaning if your grandparents went through the depression and their behaviors with money during that time were absorbed by your parents as kids, this is what we observe, then they likely observed a lot of those behaviors and tendencies, which means you likely unconsciously absorb those as well. Mm. All right. So now let's, uh, can, I want to be a patient. I want to be a patient. How do I figure out my money scripts? How do I, let's do an analysis on me and my money scripts. Can okay. we, can we diagnose my money scripts? I don't know if I want this because I think it may come out to be exposed of that. I, anyhow, we'll see. And you let's, don't, you don't let's, see can people. I be a patient on my, can you define my money scripts? If you want to throw yourself into this large moving bus mat, we can do that. Um, (laughs) at least I'm in front of it. Usually I'm under it. So, uh, you know, it's better to be in front of it, right. Or on it. Let's go with that. Yeah. There's actually an assessment you can do. It's a money scripts assessment and where you can find that by the way, is datapoints.com. So the easiest accesses for that. And datapoints.com is a team that I partner with quite closely. They actually have a number of assessments for advisors to use. It is a subscription type model where you can do assessments on personality types for your clients, money scripts, um, behavioral patterns. And so for money scripts, you would have to take the assessment. But what I can tell you is there are certain things you can look for. So for example, the, the four money scripts that exist are there's money avoidance. And these people are oftentimes uh, the people with the mindset of money's bad. Rich people are bad. They're selfish. And a lot of times you see this money script with people who have come into money for the first time, first generation wealth earners. Perhaps a lot of athletes come from a background like this where if you didn't come from money and you've developed a certain perception of those with money, you can often self-sabotage and your behaviors will prove that. So you tend to not hold on to money as much. There's also money status. Money status are folks who, they tend to link their self-worth to their net worth. And people with high money status, these might be the folks that you see in your profession, Matt, as the ones who were business owners, very successful, and then they retire and they start having a really tough time because that's been, that's their net worth has been their self-worth. And now that's changed. So that, that link can be detrimental for some folks. There is one positive money script, by the way, I know these are sounding pretty negative, but the last one we call money worship, we have changed the phrasing a little bit of money worship just because there's negative connotation with the word worship. But these are simply people who believe that the key to happiness, the solution to all my problems is just having a little bit more money, right? It'll solve all my problems. And so these people tend to chase money. They tend to be much more perhaps overworkers, right? Tend to fall into that, maybe put work before family. You might see some of those behavioral patterns. So some of this is starting to pop up for you. If any of this resonates with you particularly, Matt, and you're starting to hear any of this in yourself, we can self-associate. Yeah. I mean, it, can you be a hybrid? I like, I feel yeah. uh, we have money avoidance, money status, money worship. Was there one more that I missed? The last one is, okay, let's hear that one. which we call money vigilance. And these are people who are alert, watchful, concerned with their financial health. Likely a lot of your clients do have a decent score in money vigilance because they're working with an advisor. 
that alone means you're mindful. These people tend to save, right? Very, be very vigilant about that. But just like everything else, too much of a good thing can be bad. You can run into behavioral patterns such as hoarding. Those folks who have earned, worked really hard in life, but have a really hard time spending their money, right? Because they need to latch onto it. So these are the things you can look for, but really it's frugality that you're going to look for with vigilance. So, I mean, you can be a combination of these because a lot of these ring a bell. The only one that doesn't ring a bell, I don't know if that's a bad thing or not, is money avoidance. I've never felt that rich people are bad. I just think that they've worked really hard and that they earned it. So I don't know if money avoidance does, but money status rings a bell, right? Being a business owner, self-worth is is equal to net worth. Like, I think that there's some of that. Money (laughs) worship, you know... (laughs) I can't believe I'm admitting some of these, but I mean, I got it. I got to for the listeners, right? Is money worship solves all problems. I think that that's like the constant drive, right? Like if I can get more, but I, in, in reality, this is why I see a therapist. I mean, I have like 15 therapists on my payroll, which is a problem. I know that that's not going to solve all my problems. It's happiness and money doesn't deliver happiness. So it's like, I understand that, but there's still some intuition there. And then money vigilance. I mean, I feel like I save a lot. I spend a lot, but I also, I feel like I have a vigilance on saving. I think my kids' yeah. 529s is going be more than I think I ever had in my lifetime at the age of 21. But I think that there, there's that. So it's like I have a hybrid of those. I probably have to say, to be honest, like if I was going to be honest with myself, I say to be honest, like I need to always be honest, is probably money status and money worship probably dominate vigilance if I were to, if I were to assess myself, so which is sad. That's sure. sad. Well, I need no. to sit in a chair and have you help me. You need to be my 17th therapist. Can we have that happen? Yeah, listen, if you can hire one more and afford one more, put me on your payroll. <laughs> um, <laughs> a couple things I want to clarify. These are on a six-point Likert scale is how they're measured. So the closer you are to six, the more present that, that tendency is in your life, the way you behave with money, the closer you are to one, the lower present. So really you are going to be on a scale for all of these. You're not going to just have Mm. one or two. So you're absolutely right in that. But I also want to clarify one thing about money avoidance. It's not just the negative associations with money and the wealthy, but it's also those who have that mindset that there is a virtue with living with less money. So there's something to think about that angle as well. I don't want to confuse. Interesting. So you're saying that there's a virtue. So money avoidance mentality or, or money script. Is, is the mentality, let me try to see if I can put it in my own words, is the, is the mentality of saying, you know what, people that have all this money, they don't really need it. We can live with just a little bit of money. We don't need to live with a lot of money. Like, yeah. gosh, it's so, it's unbelievable that Joe Smith over here has to have all that money. Like, you can really live on $2,000 a month. He doesn't need $10,000 a month. Is that the kind of the mentality there? A little bit. And I hear it a lot in the younger generation that say, well, look at all these billionaires, all this money, and they don't need all that money. They should be saving their own, giving it all away. And most of the time, it's the folks that don't have that. Uh, But think of the money avoiders as people who will often sabotage any financial success they do have or won't even go after it because one, they don't think that's capability. Two, they've never experienced it. Or three, they see it as it could corrupt them, make them a bad person. So they often sabotage their financial success and or they give money away in an unconscious effort to stay at a comfortable socioeconomic level. They feel bad because they have so much money that they have to push, they have to give it away. They feel like they have, they, 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 they don't deserve that much money and they've got to give it away. And I'll tell you what, money avoidance actually showed up for me in my, my money scripts. And when I started assessing my behaviors and how it showed up, what it looked like was things like I didn't have an advisor. Right? I actually didn't have an advisor until two years ago. 
I wouldn't open my mouth. I, you, I mean, I, I have a great firm. I can I can recommend you to, but now that you already have a firm, I guess I can't right. do that. I, I wouldn't open mail because I didn't want to see my statements because I knew it's all bad anyway. It's all bills. I didn't look at my statements very often for the bank. I didn't want to budget, right? So people who maybe you have those clients who are tough to get in front of, don't really want to talk about it. Maybe there's a couple and one person never wants to go there. And here's the thing, majority of the time, we often marry people with opposite and very different money scripts than us. Mm. Hence the money. Yeah. Yeah. I love my wife, but we have uh, definitely, I can see that. That's going to be in our next topic of discussion in our monthly family meetings is money scripts. So we went down a rabbit hole, but I love that. I love to be kind of, Hey, we got to be open and honest. And I, I, that, that, that assessment's so good and it, and it can help you learn more about you. I mean, it, it, just money psychology and behavioral finance and behavioral psychology and financial psychology, all that is really just like therapy. It just makes you aware. And then it's a matter of what you do with that awareness. Awareness can be a great thing, but it can also be a very negative thing because it causes you to be paralyzed to make decisions or feel bad because you know so much about yourself, but you can't change. And that's a, that's a challenge because the next step from awareness is transformation true type of transformation, doing things differently. How do we move our clients down that spectrum from, all right, here's all the knowledge of who you are. Here's your money scripts. Mm -hmm. How do we move from position A to position B? I know there's not one right way, but what have you seen work in terms of helping people there? Yeah. And that's where a lot of the behavioral science aspects come in. So first and foremost, as you said, it starts with the awareness, having them do some of these assessments, understand where they're unconscious or subconscious behaviors come from, their beliefs, where they come from. And and then two, how are those showing up and impacting their lives? Right? Because then it becomes about noticing when and how did the triggers show up that cause potentially the destructive money behaviors or whatever's not working for them. Then it's about putting a process in place, hence the behavioral science component, to change that behavior. And here, behavioral science 101, fundamentals, if you want to stop a behavior, you need to make it harder. You need to put more barriers in the way because we are creatures of convenience. (laughs) That's what we respond to. And if you want to start a behavior, start doing something, you need to make it easier, remove barriers and find ways to make it more convenient to do. And so those are the fundamentals we're thinking about when it comes to getting people to change behavioral patterns that are deeply instilled in them. And by the way, it's worth mentioning as of this year, Financial psychology, the psychology of financial planning is now its own entire section of the certified financial planners exam. So advisors who've already taken that and who are not doing this stuff already are likely to fall behind if they're not starting to find ways to incorporate this. Yeah. You know, it's such an interesting, just like a shift, right? I mean, I, my dad built our, our original advisory firm, which we now are running. And, you know, it's just like a shift. If I were to bring this to him, and I was like, hey, there's this thing called psychology that we need to start dealing with and we need to do these assessments. He'd be like, you're crazy. And I think about advisors and I go back to something you were saying earlier. You're, you're saying like we got to move from more to this like soft skills and intrinsic feelings and yeah. EQ. But advisors at heart are analytical, numbers oriented. How have you been able to help advisors get over that? Because that's just a mindset. And yes, mindsets can change, but that is how they are wired, is analytical. And now you're telling them, nah, be intrinsic, be, be at the heart. It, yeah. How do you do that? 
So one, through coaching. And that's part of what we do at Templar is it's, it's about providing frameworks because very analytical people, they respond well to having a well-structured framework to understand and put things into practice that might not be very, that might be a little too subjective, right? So having a framework that's clear, cut and dry that you can follow and repeat is what helps a lot of advisors that I work with. And so breaking it down to one, assessing and understanding your clients. So things like frameworks for more consultative questioning and strategic understanding your clients, tying in aspects that are going to affect their money behavior, such as top biases by generation and how you frame your communications with different generations, especially doing things like wealth transfer planning frameworks around how do you handle difficult conversations with clients frameworks around finding gaps in their behaviors and dealing with family dynamics. So all of these, while they are very intrinsic and they're very subjective and they're not exactly what most advisors were trained on, the good news is, is there's tools and frameworks to help them practice and build some muscle memory to putting these behaviors to work. So let's, let's move, let's, I want to kind of think about client experience. I want to go down that avenue because it it, it relates to psychology a little bit in, in, this year, just this year as a whole, it's been a rough year. I mean, the past three years, heck, have been so wearing and, and yeah. just worn on people, right? There's been a lot of uncertainty and a lot of chaos. And you, know, you think about this year and their financial situations, it's just been chaotic. And you got to help people through that time because they're emotional and emotions drive their financial decisions. And when they get too much emotional financial decisions, you start having a bad financial outcome. Yeah. So how can we use innovative ways of either communicating or tools to help clients have a better experience with their money during such uncertain times like we've experienced over the past three years? Yeah. Well, as I mentioned earlier, one of the number one reasons clients say they work with an advisor is to help them make better quality decisions. Most of my research in the last two and a half years going on three has revolved around two key areas. One, what is happening to your client's psychology in times of uncertainty, especially mass ongoing uncertainty, right? i.e. today? <laughs> and two, what is happening to their psychology and neurology across the screen from you? How do they judge differently, trust differently, commit less? And how does it impact the decisions they make? Because right? we're all in this virtual communication environment. And what the research proves is there are some massive differences. And certainly in times of ongoing uncertainty, and when we have this proximity, this barrier between us, not to mention the isolation experience we've all gone through, what it's done is it has massively increased our biases, right? Because we've been alone, our self-awareness has gone down, our social awareness has gone down. Why do you think road rage has skyrocketed and more planes been grounded than more than ever before in history because of misconduct? It's because of social and self-awareness going down. And what this means for our decisions is that we're working with much less information and we're relying a lot more on our assumptions, which are influenced by our biases. So as advisors, some of the tools that I think are most important to be leaning on right now are what kind of tools can you use at the moment to one, help you and your clients understand themselves better? And two, what tools and frameworks can you also use an advisor, because you are human, and also use with them to help them make better decisions? And there are tools out there. We, we use frameworks here for better quality decision making. And every time I've used these tools with clients and advisors, I've had them use their own decisions. And at least 85% of the time, all of them have said, yes, I've just proven myself. I'm looking at the decision differently. The factors I'm considering and the way I'm weighting those factors has changed within 10 minute exercise. 
Mm. So it's worth giving it extra thought is what it proves. Less information and more assumptions. That's how people are making decisions. Less information and more assumptions. That is, wow. Because I think about it, thinking about the time we're in, there's more information than ever before. But to that point of that, they're not social, the, the social interaction has gone down. Mm-hmm. Everything is virtual, which means that you're really left to your own lonesome self mm-hmm. to make these assumptions. With social media, everybody's going down one avenue. So they don't see a broad range, which is, I mean, one of the va- reasons why we're so polarized in every aspect, not just politics, just everything oh, yeah. is polar- polarized. I mean, we can't even agree on like, if it's green, you go. There's arguments against that it should be stop. Like, I don't even understand that. But that is why that's such an interesting takeaway. That research, is that why? I mean, is that one of the reasons is because we have less information? It's not that we have less information. It's just that we have less diverse information. Is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, because if you think about it, you know, social, where we are majority getting our information, it's through technology. Well, that's all targeted. And we self-sabotage, by the way, because if you have a certain mindset, you're only watch certain channels. And mm. all the stuff on social media is going to target you in a certain way. So that really narrows what you're absorbing and taking in. But when I say less information, I mean a little bit more so in our interactions with people, especially given the virtual environment, now hybrid environment that we're all operating in. Because the reality is, Matt, across the screen, we're missing 70% of the sensory cues that we get face-to-face without even thinking about it that help us interpret meaning. And guess what? Mm. Executives, people running businesses, professionals, clients, they're all making decisions, impactful decisions across the screen and in this environment. And if we're losing a lot more of that information, what that means for us as professionals working with clients, making critical decisions for their futures, is we need to be much more mindful, much more purposeful, and much more attentive to our own decision-making qualities and capabilities and others. So it's things that we haven't had to think about in the past that now we have to. And hence why I'm doing a ton of coaching these days on just simply emotional intelligence. Yeah. Emotional intelligence and decision-making. I mean, you talked about some of those those exercises you go through, and I don't want you to give away all of your secret sauce, but I'm just curious. Can we go through just like a simple exercise with some of those steps? I would love to kind of expose yeah. a decision from that yeah. standpoint I, with, without giving everything away. I, I don't want to do that, but <laughs> I'm, or just like some steps that people can think of when they're thinking about decisions that will help them be more aware yeah. of their decisions or see them from different angles, which is, I think is like a big part of it. See it from another side. It's really yeah. Well, important. I know one thing that we talked about previously was even building micro resilience in times of mass uncertainty and change. And there was an exercise that I, I was going to mention here today for how I've been helping companies build micro resilience. And it is also used when trying to creatively problem solve. When you feel like you're up against a tough decision, you don't know how you're going to figure out a way how to do this. And the first step of it is if you have a piece of paper, Matt, it's going to ask you to write down a limiting belief you have. So I've had people write down, I'm going to lose my house in the divorce, or I don't have time to get a further education, or I don't have the personality to be a leader. So some sort of limiting belief that you might have. If you can think of one, if you're willing to say it out loud. For an so example. limiting belief is any limiting belief is what you're saying. So I guess a limiting belief would be if I lose a client, I'm not worth, I'm not valuable to my client, to my business, right? Okay. I'm not, if I'm not bringing in business, I'm, I'm not, not valuable to my company. Okay. All right. Let's so did you write that, that down? So I'm going to ask you to write that down on your paper. Yes. 
All right. So I'm not valuable if I'm not bringing in business. So now what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to turn that piece of paper over and I want you to write down the opposite of that belief. So what would the opposite of that? My value to this business, my value to the business goes beyond sales. Okay. So write that down if you would. My value to this business goes beyond sales. Let me know when you have that written. Done. Okay. So now what I'm going to just ask you to do is Matt, if this were true, hypothetically, that the value to the business goes beyond sales, your value to the business, why would that be so? Why would that be so if my value to the business goes beyond sales? Yeah, tell me more about that. Why, why would that be true? Having the business seen in a positive light in the community and in the, in the profession is a value to our future growth initiatives. Okay. So you bring value in and bring it light to the community, sharing insights. Yeah. Why else? Yep. And because of the association, the positive association that I would bring to the business and the light that it puts into the, the industry as well. Interesting. So what we've just done is what we call a little micro resilience exercise that's been proven to one, help people come up with more creative problem solving ideas and find solutions to problems and or challenges they face that they didn't see solutions to before. Because what you've just done is you've tricked your brain, even just for a minute or two, that other possibilities exist. And oftentimes we get so trapped in these limiting beliefs and negative beliefs that we have that are often subconscious from prior transgenerational experiences that drive how we behave, right? Because Matt, if you don't think you can do something, you're not even going to try. And so these are little exercises that can open up new doors. And I've had specifically heard of that woman who wrote down, I'm going to lose my house and divorce, did this exercise. Next thing you know, she found a way to keep the house and it all worked. But it's about tricking her mind, even just for a moment. This is the reason, by the way, I'm somebody who's constantly late. All my clocks are 15 minutes fast and I know they're fast, but for a moment, I think I'm late. So I go, <laughs> it works. That, that is incredible. I mean, that that is an exercise that, I mean, everybody should go through. I mean, that was just like a, a belief that a lot of advisors probably have of saying like, hey, if I'm not closing business today, then I'm not bringing value. And, and in this industry, people have that belief. But there are other things that you can be doing that you need to be doing. And that switch, that, that I did feel that. Like, I did feel that switch of, okay, wow, I just convinced myself that that was wrong. Step I just convinced one. myself. And now I'm good. Now, like, it's like, let's so, go. So step one That's, is acknowledge uh, the limiting belief. Step two is articulate the opposite, recognize the opposite. And then this extra step three that I threw in there, which is just something new I've been doing, is putting yourself in hypothetical. And in the world of financial psychology, visualization is such a powerful tool that we draw on. To be able to put yourself in there and accept it as true, even for a moment, you have now, as you said, just convinced yourself of that possibility. I love that. I'll that was awesome. That. All right. I, I want to get let you get back to your work, but I, I do want to talk about one other thing before we get into our final wrapping questions, because you wrote an article back in 2019 with one of my favorite people, Brad Klontz, yeah. and I just love him. He's been on the podcast, like just a great, great person. And and it's all about using financial psychology to better serve female clients. And I've talked to a lot of guests about this because I think it's a topic that, gosh, if we're not talking about it enough, we should be talking about it more because this is a topic that needs, we need to bring some awareness and progress on this 100% is how to get women more involved with their financial situation, their investments, their money into the conversation. And I'm really intrigued 
about how your approach, what your approach is and how this has grown as a topic and what your views on it is and how can we just be better? And I'm always asking how, and I know there's not one answer. And the reason I ask how is what are things people can think of that can make us be more aware and better at this? And this is something that is just a passion that I think we need to just get better at. So I'm curious to your, your thoughts on this. Yeah. And it, and it's certainly an area of our industry specifically that's, that's showing a weakness in the sense of it's just the history of the industry. It's been run by men, right? And so my approach on this, I've been doing a lot of coaching programs with clients, a lot of financial planning, wealth planning companies that are trying to, one, engage the women they have already. So either couples that they work with and or attract more women. And the approach is this. First and foremost, understanding the opportunity, understanding why. Secondly, understanding some of the differences that research, even very recent research, is consistently proving in terms of women's attitudes, preferences, behaviors toward money itself, investing, but also their expectations of their financial relationship partners. Right? So what do they expect out of their advisors and how might it be a little bit different than men? And then the big focus areas, what are some of the differences in the way men and women communicate? And I know there's a lot of controversy around gender differences today, but biologically speaking, right? Personality-wise, women and men communicate differently. You're married, Matt. Would you agree? <laughs> we don't need to go down that path. Yeah. There's some things that I'm willing to talk about and some things I'm not. We're not going on that chair right I've now. I've had zero people disagree <laughs> with me on that. But by the way, I will always bring to the table the research. So one, I have the clients bring up their own experiences and differences in between men and women and the way they communicate. And I've coached this program, by the way, with a room full of all women advisors and had them all walk away saying, wow, I do all of those things on a list of things not to do. So we talk about communication differences. We talk about differences in framing. And then how do you take that into account when you're in a room with both men and women? And part of this exercise is also going deeper in questioning. So I'll, I'll give you an example, Matt. One of the differences that came up for men and women in communication is men often believe that communication should have a clear purpose. Right? And behind every conversation is a point that needs to be made and or a problem that needs to be solved. True or false? <laughs> Uh, I mean, most men. Personal opinion. Yes, that's true. True, true. Women believe conversation and being sufficiently heard and understood is a productive end in of itself. Right? So those are some of the differences we talked about. So basics. Men often prioritize productivity and efficiency in communication. They'll often interrupt once they've heard enough to feel like they can offer a solution. Women use communication to explore and to organize thoughts, discover their feelings, and what they want to say. So you jump in too soon, you might interrupt that thought process and leave a lot on the table, walk past a lot of open doors. So these are some of the practices that I help people in developing more effective communication and questioning and listening skills, going back to the EQ, observation of the subtle cues, whether they're being spoken or not, nonverbal as well. We talk about a lot of these things. So these are where I coach advisors to be more impactful and engaging women clients. I smile if you're watching this on video, you can see, I mean, I'm nodding my head because like I, I can, I'm, I'm thinking to a conversation I had with my wife recently where that, that happened. Yeah. I'm trying to get to a solution, trying to get to a point. She's just trying to vent and I'm supposed to sit there and just say, okay, I always try to solve it. And now I'm learning like just to mm-hmm. listen at that point. And you know, what I go back to is that what we are learning now and psychology around money and to getting women more involved in their financial situation, just overall psychology, we've been dealing with this in all other aspects of our lives. And unfortunately, just now is coming to money. 
And money is the most important thing because like, I mean, these are lessons of psychology of how to handle people that has been around forever. It's unfortunate that it's just now getting into financial and money. Well, and, and with a lot of my clients, I also mentioned this women is just one of the focus areas, but I say what it's coming down to is the fact that we now have a much more diversified client base, right? That's yeah. just the way it is generationally by gender, by background, by culture, all of it, which means in short, it requires better observation skills, more attentive interpretation, and, and a more impactful adaptation to your audience. And these are skills mm-hmm. most of us haven't had to practice because especially in this industry, it's been pretty homogenous. So yeah. now we're having to really think about how does that change? It's male dominated and, and it's not been and to the point, right, of how males think. And it's not just males versus females, like of what we're learning in just psychology. It's just a matter of how do you handle people in their emotional state to keep them from being emotional. And, you know, I think back to like some of the old school advisors from back in the day prior to all this happening. They're like, yeah, I could have told you that young buck. You know, it, it's all about, you know, just building relationships. They didn't have the science behind it, but they knew they were actually smarter than we give them credit for because they were like, you just got to build a relationship with these people. And we've gotten into this quick transactional world that is, let's get through this. Let's get it quick. Let me move on to the next thing. Let me learn this. Let me move on to the next thing. Back in the old days, it was like, let's just kick our feet up on the table, have a beer and let's talk for three hours. I don't know a young advisor that would be comfortable sitting in a room talking to someone for three hours. I just don't. I just don't. Yeah, I can't get any young people to talk to me for more than 15 minutes. <laughs> right. You know, gosh, this is super interesting. I would love to have you back because we could talk again for forever. And as you continue to put out studies and stuff, please share them with me so I can share them with our community because I'd love to continue reading research that you find and sharing that. But Lindsay, before we go, I got to ask you two questions. All right. Two questions I ask everybody. And the first one, and this is I'm super intrigued by, one of the main reasons I do this podcast is to learn. And I've learned a ton from you. So thank you. I'm a lifelong learner. That's one of my values that I have as an individual. And I think that also we can learn from books. And so I always ask my readers because I want to learn from them of what they're reading. And so I can go learn more. What's one of those books out there today that you're like, everybody has to read? See, I had a really hard time narrowing this down, Matt, because I'm reading three at once and I'm obsessed with all three of them. Let's give them all three. We'll take three. Okay. Let's go. Let's First go. and foremost, brain rules. I think it's John Medina, uh, brain rules. And these are simply just about how does our brain work naturally? And how can you, if you're somebody who interacts with people, put these to work to make sure that you are more impactful with your audience in some way, that it lands. Also, because we're a communication firm, I'm always reading, how do I communicate more impactfully? Finding the best ways to bring to life these concepts we coach. One of them that I'm in love with right now is called Made to Stick by Dan and Chip Heath. I don't know if you've heard of them, very influential characters in the area of behavioral sciences. And then written by my personal brain hero, is how I refer to him, Jordan Peterson. He's very controversial as well, but 12 Rules for Life. If you haven't read that, life-changing. I'm at, I'm halfway through, still life-changing at this point. It's a, it's a tough right. read, long read, but worth it. It's a long read. All right. That's good. I like long reads. Hey, you, yeah. you know, I, I'm a big fan of Ryan Holiday and he's got this course that's called the Reading Challenge. And he and it's all about like it's like five, four, 15 days about reading and how to be a better reader and everything. He's like, you got to go outside your comfort zone. If you only like short books, then read a long book once. If you only like, you know, business book, go read a fiction or Harry Potter, whatever it may be. So you got to get out your comfort zone. So that Jordan Peterson could be your outside your comfort zone at that point, which, which is good. All right. Last question. And I got this from Barron's when I go to their conferences. They always ask their their panelists, 
What's one piece of actionable advice that our audience can take away from our conversation today that will make them better tomorrow? And I would love, I mean, there's so much here, but if you had to choose one, mm-hmm. what would it be? I'm going to come from a very biased perspective on this one because of what I do for a living, but also what I do for a living is because of my own personal obsession, like you, Matt, to constantly be learning and getting better. So my one piece of advice is whatever it is, invest in some sort of training, coaching, further education to get better because you don't get better on your own, right? We all get better because we have influencers that help us do that, whether it's a coach, a teacher, an author, somebody. So invest in it. It's worth it. Sometimes reading doesn't just do the trick. Invest in something that's going to give you the skills and the behaviors to up your game because we are in an increasingly competitive world and industry. And the only way you're going to keep going and be successful is to keep doing that. I love that. I love that. Lindsay Larrabee, you have been incredible. I am so appreciative of your time, your knowledge, your insight. So thank you so much. And I want to continue to follow everything you're doing. Like I said, please send me everything. But I know that our listeners will as well. So how can they continue to follow you, the impact you're making, and just be part of your clan going forward? Certainly can connect with me on LinkedIn, Lindsay Larrabee, and then also follow Templar Advisors on LinkedIn. We put up a lot of insights, blogs on behavioral aspects and communication tips and being more effective with clients and really about 80% of our client base is in financial services. So very targeted to this audience. I love it. You're a rock star. I'm so appreciative of your time and thank you so much for sharing your knowledge here with us on Bridging the Gap. Appreciate it, Matt. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 